Hello, and welcome to Partial Lab. I'm Rifki, the producer of Partial Lab. And I'm Ami, one of the writers at Aleph Beta. Ami, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here, Rifki. Before we jump into the content, I want to remind all of you that if you like what you've been hearing, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't have to miss another episode. Just go straight to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts, and just subscribe there. And, Ami, this is the new thing. If you want to hear way more content, just check out our website at alephbeta.org. You can get started watching for free, or for a very small monthly fee, you can get hundreds of hours of video and audio content. And... Ami, check this out. Wait, 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 Rifki, listeners... just hold up. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> signing up for Aleph Beta right now as you're speaking, so okay. just well, bear with me. The, Ami, this is critical. While you do it, put in a special coupon code, Partialab, all one word. It's 50% off your first month. That's a deal, no? Done, done. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Ami, let's jump into the content. Bahalotcha. Okay, before we get into Bahalotcha itself, Rifki, I want to just ask you something. What comes to mind when you think of the book of Bamidbar? What are some of the stories, the themes, the topics covered? The way I generally think of Bamidbar is I think of it as the bulk of the 40 years in the desert, right? What happens in Bamidbar is the people actually start their journey, which is supposed to take 40 days because of the sins of the people. It ends up taking 40 years. And this is the time where they prepare for entering the land of Israel. That's what I think the the bulk of the book is really Mm. about. So what's really interesting to me in the way you described it is that It's sort of the stories that take place in the shadow of sin, of mistakes. Ooh, it's an intense way to put it. But yeah, I think that's true. So much of what happens is the people kind of messing up, right? It's complaining or the people getting annoyed at Moshe or at God or doing the wrong thing over and over. And we just, we feel bad already. Let's go. Let's get moving. Right. So, and even if you look at some of the Parshas in Bamidbar, you know, Korach, Okay, we know that was a bad yeah. story. Shlach, okay, the spies, that was a, that was a terrible story. Pinchas, okay, spearing people, more plagues. Yeah. Balak, curses. Right, it's it's got all all these all these terrible things that are happening. But that's all second half of Bamidbar. What's our parsha called? Bahalotcha. Right, and what's Bahalotcha mean? Why is it called Bahalotcha? We can look at it inside, but it's called Bahalotcha because if I'm not mistaken, the first thing that happens in this week's parsha is that God tells Moshe. Aaron, his brother, who's going to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, uh, he's going to go and light the Nerot, like the lamps of the menorah, and he's going to sort of go up to it. So Baha'u when you go up to light the lamps. Mm-hmm. And it, he gives some laws about, about that menorah. Right. Since you mentioned it, I'll read the first two two verses. Uh, we're in chapter 8 of, of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. Vaydeber Hashem al God spoke to Moses, saying, Daber el Aharon Tell Aaron, when you lift up the flames, so to speak, lift up the candles, they should all face the menorah, all seven candles. Now, Oh, so I said it wrong. I said Baha'u'llah was about Aaron lifting himself up, but you're right. It's really about when you lift the candles in some sense. Right. It's about raising the flame, so to speak. Now, does that have anything to do with the kinds of stories of Bamidbar we're used to? Spies, Korach, rebellion complaints, it seems to have to do with, well, the Mishkan. Right, yeah. We think of Bamidbar as really about a lot of these stories in the Midbar, in the desert, in the wilderness, but really this is this goes back to laws of the Mishkan, right? It's it goes back to Bayikra, it goes back to the second half of Shmo. It feels unrelated to the way we normally really think of Bamidbar. Right. And but the thing is that if we kind of backtrack in Bamidbar, 
what comes before Bahalotcha is Naso, where we talk about the inauguration of the of the altar, and then in Bamidbar mm-hmm. we're talking about the encampment around the Mishkan. It actually the first few parshas, the first few chapters of the book of Bamidbar are all really about building the camp centered around the Mishkan and getting ready for the great departure of the children of Israel through the desert on their way to the land of Israel. I, I actually think that Bahalotcha is, in a sense, the meeting point, if you will, between the story of the Mishkan traveling through the desert towards the Holy Land, and the story of all the mistakes and and terrible, tragic kind of circumstances that the children of Israel find themselves in in the desert. Pretty cool. It sounds like what you're saying is this parsha is is a real transition, bringing us from the laws and from the things that are really associated with the Mishkan and the ritual associated with it to the travels that the people of Israel are about to embark on to bring them to Israel. So I'm excited to see how that how that works out. Exactly. We get the menorah. We get stories about inaugurating the Levim for their work in the Mishkan. Then we start to hear about how the Mishkan is going to travel with the children of Israel as they set off on their journey. And we hear in chapter 10 about a somewhat epic movement of the whole camp. It's almost like synchronized swimming of, you know, two million people. It's Moshe blasts the trumpets and, and then this tribe and this flag, they all get up and they start moving. And then this tribe and their flags, they start moving. And, and it's as if everything that we've been building, literally and textually building since the middle of, of Exodus in the book of Shemot is now finally taking off. You know, we actually have still been at Mount Sinai until this point. It's only now that the journey towards the land of Israel with the Mishkan at its center is beginning. Wow, it's it's pretty epic the way you describe that, Ami. Like, I'm imagining this visual, and it seems pretty amazing. They they have. They've been sitting here. They've been learning the laws. They've been learning from Moshe. They've been writing themselves, writing themselves. And it's like, oh, let's go already. Almost imagine this formation of these hundreds of thousands of, you know, old people and children and animals and, and everything. Like, it, it's, it's pretty exciting to see it finally happen. Right. And then we hit this sort of brick wall. Then all of a sudden, people start complaining. People start complaining more. There's plagues. There's accusations. We should just have stayed in, in Egypt. And, and, and everything seems to be a downward spiral from there. And, and, and I want to focus in right at that breaking point, Rifki. So let's turn, if you will, to chapter 10, verse 33. You, you want to read the next couple of verses and, and just kind of summarize what, what they're saying? Sure. For, for context, is this this is where they first are about to move? So we have we've just heard about actually the the epic movement of the whole nation, all the tribes and things like that, and then this sort of small little uh, story where Moshe turns to to his father in law and says, "Hey, why don't you come along with us? You know, we're going to that great land that God has promised us. Basically, Rifki, we're on our way. Everyone should come. It's time to go." Okay, and they set forward from the mountain of God, which I guess was a three-day journey away from the mountain of God, the Aaron Brit Hashem, and the Ark of the Covenant with God, went a three-day journey ahead of them, to seek out some sort of resting place for the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. I think simply stated, the Menucha, the resting, sounds like it probably has to do with where's the next campsite going to be. Right. You know, a scouting trip, mm-hmm. right? Going out ahead of the mass. And the cloud of God was over them by day. 
when they were traveling from the camp. They're basically setting off on their journey and they have the Ark of God clearing the path for them ahead, scouting out the journey, and they have these clouds basically hovering over them to protect exactly. them. Exactly. And it came to pass when the when the Ark was traveling that Moshe said, that Moses said, Kuma Hashem, rise up, God, via Futsu Evecha, and let your enemies be scattered, via Nusu Misanecha Mipanecha, and let those who hate you run away and, and flee before you. And when the ark rested, then he would say, Shuba Hashem, return, O God, revote Alfei Israel unto the tens of thousands of the people of Israel. Come back to us, God. So it's almost like when the ark was going forward, Moshe would say, okay, God, go ahead of us and just kind of like get rid of all your enemies. Let them all get away from us, clear our path. And then when the ark rested, it's like Moshe would say, okay, God, now come back, come back to us now. Right. And, and it's very much reflecting what we saw in those verses right before. God is clearing the path ahead of them. And then, okay, God, rest here with us. Stick around, be with your people now. And then the very next verse, beginning of chapter 11, is the beginning of this downward spiral. You just it's, read... It's so immediate. It's like there's no transition even. People are starting to complain. It's like you, you don't even pause. You don't even take a breath. And the people are already complaining. And not only that, it's Rab Ozne Hashem. There's evil stuff that God is hearing from these people. A fire erupts now in the camp and, and starts to eat away at, at the corner of the camp. Things just start to get bad here. And Rifki, you know, you were talking about how jarring that transition, it's the lack of transition even, the cloud, the trumpets, the movement, everything's on its way, triumphantly marching through the desert, and then bam, complaints, fires, more complaints, more plagues. I just also want to, want to point out that we have this sort of generic complaint that begins in, in verse one here, and then a few verses later, the people start to complain more specifically, the Asaf Suf, this sort of gathered multitude of folks, Asher Bekir Bo, Hit Avu Ta'avam, in verse 4 now, they desired a desire, Vayashuvu Vayivku Gamben Israel Vayomru Mi Yachilenu Basar, the children of Israel, along with this gathered peoples from all different nations, start to desire meat. And they start to say, who's going to give us some real meat to eat here? We're sick of the man. This leads to, to a whole other story of, of plague, the quails, if you, if you remember. But I just want to focus on, on what you said before, Rifki. It's like there's no, we don't miss a beat here. Everything seems to be going in the right direction. And then bam, complaints, plagues, complaints, and more plagues. What's, so sad. It's really sad. And what's kind of fascinating about this is it seems that the Talmud actually picks up on this bizarre um, sequence of events here and says, you know what? There actually is a break in the story. And there's two different ways the Talmud describes that break. It describes it back in those those two verses you read by Yehibin Soharon in a Torah scroll. We're, we're on radio, so you can't see it. <laughs> is radio a thing anymore? We're on a podcast, so you can't see it. But if you look in, a, in, any, in any Chumash, any Bible, or you look in the Torah scroll itself, it has these backwards nuns. Right kind of bookending those two verses, verses 35 and Sort of separating it out into its own right. section. Right, so there's two different ways the rabbis explain this. One way is to say, you know, these verses really don't belong here at all. These verses of, of the Ark traveling forward, they belong earlier in the book when we hear about how the camp is and how it's supposed to move and all those things. These verses belong in that story of how things should be when we hear about the camp movement, the camp's movement. And another take on it, the rabbis say, these two verses... They're not even part of the same book we're reading here. And this is pretty bizarre, Rifki. The rabbis say that these two verses are a book of the Torah unto itself. 
How many books of Torah are there? How many books of Moses, Rifki? Five. The five books of Moses. The rabbis say one of the opinions in the Talmud is that no, the book of Amidbar is broken into three books. From the beginning of Amidbar until this backward nun, from the end of these verses till the end of Amidbar, and these two verses themselves form their own book of Torah. So there's an interesting sentiment there, right? There is like, what, presumably what the rabbis mean there is not meant to be taken literally, right? It's not meant to say sort of like, oh, how many books in the Torah are there? There are six. Here are the six books. I would guess what the rabbis are trying to say is there's something so special, so important, so unique about these verses that we set them off completely and we say focus on these ki'ilu, almost as if they are their own book. Mm-hmm. I would need to think about it more to get at what they're trying to say about these verses. Right. So I, I actually... Actually, I want us to, to let that question kind of dangle for, for the time being, and maybe we'll come back to it. I want to focus a little bit on the specific language used in the verses that come before this uh, bizarre additional book of the Torah, and some of the language that's used in the book after. And let's start with the aftermath. And let's start specifically with the, the verses that I began reading, the Asaf Suf in verse 4. We talked about this, this mixed multitude of people who start desiring quails, right? And they start saying, we, we remember all that great food we ate in Egypt. Um, and here we are out in the desert, sick of this man that we have to eat. We have a little description of the man. I, I'm going to read out for you a little bit. Story verse 10. Moshe hears them crying in their tents. God gets very angry. And look at these words. In Moshe's eyes, it was wicked. It's interesting. I think we generally think of sort of Moshe's role very often in Torah to calm down God when God Mm -hmm. is angry, right? It's like God after the golden calf, God wants to destroy Mm -hmm. his people. And he turns to Moshe and says, I'm done with them. And Moshe has to sort of, you know, take it down a notch and say, okay, but you know, they're your people. You got to forgive them. You got to work with them. You know, it's not their fault. Don't forget the covenant, right? All of these things. And here it's like God is angry. And then we, the, the Torah sort of turns the camera to Moshe and says, okay, so now what's Moshe going to do? Moshe's like, forget it. I'm done. Mm-hmm. These people, no way. I can't handle this anymore. Right. Basically, he goes into this whole speech. God, did I give birth to these people? What the terrible thing you're doing to me? You must hate me for giving this whole nation to take care of. What am I, their, their mother? Am I their wet nurse? Where am I going to get meat to feed all these people? I can't carry it by myself. And then Moshe says, I'm reading verse 15, If this is what you're going to do to me, Kill me now. If you like me. And don't let me see the terrible things that are going to befall me. Rifki, this is bizarre. Not only the golden calf that Moshe went to battle for these people, but every other story that we read of until now, when the people, you know, they started complaining about they didn't have water. What did Moshe praise for them? Even even the story right before of the Mit Onanim, this, this sort of blanket complaint that God didn't like, they scream to Moshe. Moshe prays for them and the plague stops. But here Moshe turns around and for the first time he says, not only are these people awful, but Moshe says, kill me now. You remember what Moshe said at the Golden Calf Rikvi that this kind of reminds me of? What does that remind you of? Kill me now, God, if, if this is what you're going to do. If I recall correctly, what Moshe says is almost the opposite of this. Mm-hmm. Moshe says, is, if you're going to destroy them, don't bother with me. Destroy me too. Right. Moshe says, erase me from the book you wrote, God. Mm-hmm. And here, Moshe seems to be saying somewhat the same and somewhat the opposite. He's saying, God, take me out of the picture. Kill me now if you're going to make me still have to take care of these people because I right. can't take them any longer. He's made a whole about right. face, 180 degree. Like at the golden calf, it's almost like he was sacrificing himself on the altar of 
Israel. And he was saying, okay, if you're going to destroy them, you know, I, I'm going down with the ship mm-hmm. to mix metaphors a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with them. And now he's, I, he's like, I, if you're going to make me be with them, I'm done. Just, just please just have mercy and, and take me out of this world. And so the next verses here, there's sort of a, a collision between two things going on. On the one hand, the people want meat. And at the same time, Moshe is saying, I can't handle them anymore. And God seems to be responding to both these things at the same time. Okay, so Ami, I want to hear what God says to Moshe. But before we get there, I want to remind all you listeners, if you like what you're hearing, don't miss another episode. Subscribe at Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Listen to the podcast every single time a new episode comes out. And of course, if you want to hear way more, go to alphbeta.org. Check it out there. Get started watching for free. Or for a small monthly fee, you get unlimited content. But Partial Lab listeners get a special coupon, 50% off your first month. Just put in the coupon code Partial Lab when you join. Okay, Ami, now please tell us, what does God say to Moshe? I'm on the, I'm on the edge of my seat. So Moshe basically just had said, kill me because I can't handle these people. So God says, you know what? Gather 70 elders together. And I'm going to pour out from some of that divine spirit that you carry, some of that prophetic ability, and I'm going to give it to them so you're not going to have to be the only prophet in town. There will be other people who can take care of the children of Israel with you. And woven into this funny story of giving over the prophecy to other people is, and don't worry, I'm going to feed them food. I'm going to give them meat, a whole month's worth of meat. It's going to be coming out of their noses. And then they get, we get this story where basically Moshe then comes out. He gathers the 70 elders. They all stand around the Ohel, the meeting tent. God's cloud comes down and that spirit pours over to the 70 elders. It pours out into these two folks, Eldad and Medad. They're sitting in the camp. They also get kind of infected with this prophecy. And then, Moshe gets gathered back to the camp. He comes back with all the elders, the, the now prophets. And a wind blows out from, travels out from God. It carries quail with it from the seas. And they get spread out throughout the camp. We get this bizarre kind of melding between prophecy and meat. And what's even crazier, Rifki, is that the words that are used to speak about this spreading out of prophecy are the same words used to talk about the quails and the meat being given to the people of Israel. I'm going to point out two words used over and over again here. Remember what the folks were called, those people who wanted, who started complaining about meat, Rifki? The Asaf Suf. What's the root of that word, Asaf Suf? I would say Asaf, right? Which, which really feels like it's to gather. To gather. Look in chapter 11, 16, when, when, when God begins to respond to Moshe. What does he yeah, say? Very cool. God says to Moshe, Esfa li shivim ish al gather for me seventy people from the from the elders of Israel. Exactly. And I'm gonna kind of just glance through here. If we go through these verses, the word le'esof asaf comes up over and over and over again. It says, I'm jumping to verse 24. Moshe goes out. He speaks to the people. Vayesof shivim ish. Fine. Not so shocking. He gathers the 70 people like God said to. But then let's let's keep going on. The quails have come into the camp. And what do we hear? Verse 32. Read it, Rifki. 
Vayakam ha'am kol hayom ha'hu v'kol halayla v'kol hayom ha'macharet. And the people rose up that day and all night and all the next day. Vayasfu et aslav. And they gathered the quail, right? The same word, asaf. But it, now it's not no longer talking about the, the elders and the prophecy and who's going to sort of be able to help Moshe. And now the, the gathering is referring to it's referring to the slav, right? And it keeps going. Asaf asara chamarim. They gathered, you know, 10 chamarim, 10, 10 piles or something like that. You know, th- this word, Asaf, that's really interesting find, Ami. And so, Rifki, the, the bizarre thing is that it doesn't end there. Because at the end of the Parsha, we have another little vignette that seems to be an unrelated story. Miriam and Aaron speaking badly about Moshe and this woman that he married. Let's go all the way towards the back here, by the way. Again, God's response has to do with Moshe's prophecy, other people's prophecy, right? We're still in this weird, like, prophetic conversation. Now look at what happens at the end of this story. I'm looking at verse 14. So what's happening at this point, if I remember correctly, is that Miriam has has Sarah, nice. uh, white as snow, and Moshe cries out to God and basically asks him to heal her, right? El na rafana la, please, please heal her. And what does God say? By Yomar Hashem el Moshe, God responds back to Moshe, Vavia yarok yarak befaneha. If her father had spit in her face, shouldn't she, wouldn't she hide her face? Wouldn't she be ashamed for seven days? So she should be, she should be shut up. She should be set aside without the camp for seven days, away from the camp. Tea safe. Mm-hmm. And after that, she should be, be gathered back into the camp. Mm-hmm. Tea safe. Asaf. One more time. And Ami, the next verse, cool the next stuff. verse, let's hear what happens. Vatisagir Miriam. And Miriam is shut off, um, outside the camp. Shivat Yamim for seven days. Va'am lonasa, but the nation didn't travel. Until when? Ad hea safe Miriam. Until Miriam was regathered into the camp. Wow. We have this recurring theme of Asaf. It's the Asaf Suf, the people who start desiring meat. It's the gathering of elders that Moshe now spreads his prophecy to. It's the people gathering their quails to eat. And it's Miriam being gathered back into the camp at the end of this prophecy. And Ami, didn't you say that there was another word also that's going to travel along with us? So there is another word here that that seems to pop up and, and connect at least some of these stories. And that's the word Ruach. The word Ruach means spirit. We can understand how Ruach would have to do with prophecy. So, for example, when God says to Moshe, gather 70 elders to me, God says, I'm going to come to speak to you. I will, atzalti is a, is a funny word, but almost to say I'm going to bestow from that spirit, that divine spirit upon you, the prophetic spirit, and give it to them. And what we hear just a few verses later, when God actually sends the quails, after that ruach, after that spirit of prophecy is spread to the elders, is spread to Eldad and Medad, it then says, V'ruach nasa me'et Hashem. God blows out a spirit, this time not a spirit of prophecy, but a spirit of what? It's a spirit of quails. Quail. <laughs> <laughs> like people are just sitting in their houses, you know, looking around, doing the crossword, and suddenly you're like, oh my God, it's so windy. Right, just imagine what would have quails- sounded. Just like. rush in. So I want to contrast that it's really really Asaf is the primary word here, and Ruach seems to also weave these stories together. And I want to contrast it with what I think is the operative term in the first half of the Parsha. Remember, we said the Parsha is basically broken into two halves, split in the middle by that... By those nuns. By those nuns, exactly. 
So again, we're not going to have time to read through it, but if you just take some time to look through the beginning of Bahalotra, we have the term nasa, vayisa, traveling, moving forward, right? Vayibin soa ha'aron, let the ark go forward. But really, before that, that epic description is of the camp moving onward, moving forward. Rifki, where were they all moving to in the beginning of this parsha? They're finally going to pick up and move to the to the land. They're, They're going to move to up. the land of Israel. Exactly. They're moving towards the land of Israel. And by the end of the parsha, what are they doing? Are they moving to the land of Israel? It's completely, it's like devolved into mayhem. It's devolved into mayhem. Now, they're still moving. The word nasa comes up a bit more. But nasa at the end of the parsha is only happening in response to isuf, to gathering. The people will only travel when Miriam is gathered back in. They're still traveling. We, we like to not read with the end in mind here, but you and I know that very soon we're going to hear about the spies. And then the destination of this journey is going to look very different. But what begins to happen here is that instead of moving forward, the people start to just be collected inward. And I'm going to ask you something. It's a very chilling connection here. But Rifki, the end of the story here, we hear about Miriam having to be gathered back to the camp. There's other places in the Torah that talk about being gathered back into your people. What does that mean when it's brought up in the Torah? The, the first thing to me that, that comes to mind is really death. This is language is all over Genesis, right? Referring all over to, when, when the, the Abo dies, exactly. So being gathered into your people, it, it almost seems like in some chilling way, the, the, the Parsha begins with a journey, a promise, an excitement of finally getting to the place where we're all waiting to go to. And then something terrible happens in the middle. And from this point onward, the rest of not only this Parsha, but the whole book of Bamidbar is the opposite movement. We're not moving forward. We're being gathered in. In the next Parsha, we're going to hear about the spies. The whole generation is going to start dying off. There's an ingathering that happens here where we're not so much going forward anymore as everything of this generation is falling apart. And this Parsha really encapsulates the movement from the beginning of the story to how the story ends up and the trajectory that it follows. There, there, there's something about that that's so sad, Ami. Like, you know, you mentioned before very quickly, you know, don't read with the end in mind. And I think that's what we try to do when we read the Torah, right? We try to read the Torah, you know, f- clearing our minds of the, of the things that we know are going to happen, the good and the bad that we know are going to happen. But it's just so sad to imagine, you know, at the beginning of this Parsha, the people are so excited and Moshe's excited and God's excited. And it's like, okay, we're going to do this. You know, we're getting up, we're going to Israel, right? You know, God maybe knows what's going to happen, but maybe he too, sort of in the back of his mind, is hoping hoping that things are going to be different and everything is kind of kind of kind of turn around. It's just so sad to imagine the transition from from the beginning of this parsha to what is going to come so soon mm-hmm. and and everything just kind of falling apart and people in in so much pain and the people sitting and the people dying and, and it's really just hard to think about. It's really just sad. Mm-hmm. So it, it is really tragic and 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 I want to relate now back to that that kind of bizarre statement of the rabbis that there's really three books of of the Torah that we encounter in this single parsha. If I had to name those three books based on what we talked about today, Rifki, I'd say the first book of, of Bamidbar, from the beginning of Bamidbar until the first of those backward nuns, Vayihib and Saharon, mm-hmm. that's the story of the promise. It's the book of, if you will, what the desert experience was supposed to be. And then that next Yomar, right? The ark is traveling. God is wiping out the enemies. God is resting with the people. It's actually the idyllic picture of what could have happened, but right. didn't. It's the midbar that could have been. It's the midbar that could, it's the triumph that could have been, or that maybe was for just a moment. And then the next story of the complaints and the gathering in and the quails 
is the story of what actually happened in the desert. Now, like you said, there's something really tragic about there, something very disappointing. And I want to say that if there's any silver lining in this parsha, I think it actually has to do with those words of Isuf and Ruach, that gathering and that spirit in the stories that we saw of Moshe's prophecy spreading out to the people and, and even of this generation ultimately dying out and a new generation taking their place. Because what ends up happening, yeah, Moshe moves from being the trumpet blaster and the whole movement of the camp to being the one who's complaining, I can't take these people anymore, just kill me. It's a terrible consequence, a terrible place, situation he ends up in. But what happens from there is not only that we end up losing, you know, on the, on the one hand, we end up losing the dream, if you will. The dream was that the Mishkan would be built and we'd all travel and just end up in the land of Israel in a couple, in a couple days or, or, or weeks. That didn't happen. But what did happen was that the prophetic spirit of Moshe became spread more among the people. Something about the structure as it was of Moshe as their leader and these specific people, this generation who left Egypt along with Moses, something about this, this structure wasn't able to fulfill the promise. It wasn't able to make it to the promised land. But what ends up happening is that Moshe's spirit gets spread out among the people. Now there's 70 elders. Now there's more prophecy. Then there's these two random guys hanging out in the camp. They're also prophets. We didn't mention this, but when that happens, Yehoshua gets really upset. He turns to Moshe and says, Moshe, you won't imagine Eldar and Medar, they're prophesying in the camp. And Moshe says, why are you so upset, Yehoshua? If it were up to me, everybody in this nation would be prophets. And it seems like as long as Moshe held that role of leadership vis-a-vis these specific people, the ones who left Egypt, they couldn't make it. The dream was not only for there to be a powerful leader who brought the people and the Mishkan into the land of Israel. The dream was for there to be a unified nation that all somehow were in touch with the Spirit of God, that were in touch with the purpose of their being here and of their entering the land. And that happens ultimately by this generation dying off and by a new generation taking their place. In, in my eyes, that's the silver lining in this transition that happens in, in, in Parsha Pahalotcha. The dream dies for the, the generation who left Egypt. But there's the beginning of a new trajectory. We're not even there yet. Just we get an inkling of that there's going to be a, a change in the structure. And that happens here with new prophets. It's going to happen in the coming Parshiot with new people who are going to enter the land. It's not even going to be the same people. But it all begins here in Pahalotcha with, with this tragic break in the narrative and what looks like the beginning of the end. Of, of this generation, underneath that whole story, it's also the new generation that's sprouting. There's there's something really bittersweet, you know, about that. I think I think you're totally right, Ami, that it's it's painful and difficult, but there's also, you know, there is that, that silver lining there. Um, I also think about, you know, the language parallels that are so interesting of, of being, of gathering, which to a certain extent means slowing or stopping, but also, there's a closeness, right? When the people wait for Miriam before they go on to travel, they're also kind of showing a, a certain love for her. And in, in the same vein, I think about, you know, we were so surprised when God gets angry at the people. He's so upset. And then we turn to Moshe and he too is so upset. It's almost like if we really don't read with the end in mind, we think, you know, that's it. Often Moshe is the only thing that stops God from destroying the people. But when Moshe turns to God and says, that's it, I'm done with these people, God doesn't say, oh, finally, you're on my side, I'm going to destroy them. You know, God doesn't reject the people. God says, oh, okay, Moshe's, you know, there's there's a lot of other, that could be a whole conversation in itself. Why does God then kind of seem to soften? But God doesn't reject them, right? And that almost feels like, 
it shows itself in that other word, right? That word of Ruach, where God's Ruach stays with the people and God gives uh, Nevuah, God gives prophecy to these other people and God brings food to them. You know, they're complaining. They're being so annoying right now, but God still will not reject them. God stays with them. And over these 40 years, right, as God sort of says, okay, these people are maybe not going to be ready, but we just got to get the next generation kind of up to snuff to be able to be in full relationship with me and be able to then enter the land and be able to, you know, continue that. And, and, and he doesn't leave us. He doesn't reject us. And there's something really, there's something really intense. And, and again, I guess, I guess bittersweet. It, it is sad and it, it's really sad to think about, but there's also something kind of beautiful about it and that relationship with God that, that continues. There's something really beautiful in what you're pointing years. out there, Rifki, that when Moshe can no longer stand up for the people and he's the one who falls in his estimation of them. So God, God's the one who picks up the slack. And, and, and I'll just like, I'm throw in one more thing there is if you look at, at Moshe and God's way of talking in the second half of the Parsha, they really talk about themselves in the role of parent. Moshe yeah, says, yeah. what am I, their mother? When, when Miriam is sick, Aaron turns to Moshe and says, don't let her be like the, the infant who leaves its mother's womb with half its flesh eaten, which the rabbis basically say, Aaron's turning to Moshe and saying, we all come from the same womb, Moshe. Can't you pray for your sister? Can't you see her as the one who emerged from the womb that you emerged from? And then God turns around and says, and if her father spat in her face, what would you do? It, it really seems like Moshe and God are playing mom and dad for the people. Like it or not, they're stuck with, with yeah. the people. And when one, when one can't take them anymore, the other one's going to pick up the slack. That's actually a great place to stop because we have a bunch I, I i didn't mean to do this but just i have to plug the aleph beta website because we actually have a bunch of videos that particularly relate to not only this story about miriam and sarat and we, we discuss these really in depth in parsha videos that relate to the sarat's parshiot um, but there are video we have a ton of videos on baha on the people in the desert right there's so much more content ami i know that you know you probably don't know you probably don't watch these videos so often so if you want to really jump in there just check out our website and i guess if you know people people listening at home also if you if you like what you're hearing way more content at alephbeta.org and again 50% off your first month just put in the coupon code partialab when you join Ami thank you so so much for joining me today this was incredible thank you Rifki this was awesome bye everyone bye